0: Cricketing View, an irregular podcast about cricket and other things. Hello and welcome to a new episode of a Cricketing View podcast. Today's episode is about a book which uh, my friends uh, Abhishek Mukherjee and Arunabh Sain Gupta have written about one partnership in one test match. It's called Sachin and Azhar at Cape Town and it's about uh, their double century stand in the Cape Town test which started when India were 58 for 5 at risk of being routed in the series, Harsha Bhoghle wrote a foreword for the book. And in the foreword, he writes, far too often, we who cover cricket don't place it in the perspective of a wider world. If anything, our vision has narrowed. Society and politics seem distant neighbors of sport. But in reality, they are close cousins. And nowhere is this more visible than in South Africa. The setting that the two cricket lovers with a view of the world beyond cricket have chosen to place this book in. It was the place to be in the 90s. Cricket started with hope and ended with brief despair. But it was at all times a mirror to a ravaged society looking for sustenance. Arunab and Abhishek, the men with a flair for words, sensitive, history-loving writers have attempted a mammoth task. And in doing so, look at South African cricket in larger context. If anything, the game there has hollowed since. But only the future can tell us if this was a necessary weeding out of one culture and the planting of another that's quite an introduction to to your book abhishek in the book you have a, an account of how the idea of the book came about but how did it really come about basically we have been discussing this
1: innings for some time and whenever the great partnerships or innings are discussed these somehow never make, never never make it to the top and yet i mean these happen together simultaneously and in the same almost in the same session they were playing with each other see what we see is in most major partnerships especially when a side is under pressure one person takes charge the other person plays a support act but in this case you, we saw a counterattack from both ends this is uh, this can this has worked for a short period of 15 minutes or so but to sustain it for 2 hours and against a fast bowling attack like this. And after being after losing uh, what 15 wickets in the series for about two twenty-five runs or something like that, to start an onslaught from there and to pull it off. I think that is very special. I'm leaving the occasion and everything aside. Just the quality of the uh, partnership, the audacity of the onslaught, and the fact that it I think that made it very special, and I will, And if you look uh, deeply, you'll find almost nothing written on this. I mean, neither books, nor the newspaper coverage is not very great. Uh, You'll see a couple of YouTube videos and internet coverage, especially in India, was in its early days. So there's virtually no coverage of So actually, we uh, and I had been discussing this for some time that had this been played in England or played by an Englishman, I mean two Englishmen, there would have been at least I mean there would have been volumes written on this and we saw that exactly. Michael Atherton's innings came roughly at the same time. I think today is an anniversary or yesterday was an anniversary. So we have seen how many pieces you'll find written on that sprawled across the internet. So we felt actually something needed to be done about this and the rest basically whether one partnership deserves a book. We were discussing short phases of cricket, and he suggested that we may come up with a book on this topic,
0: on two hours of cricket, and build a story around it. I don't know. There is a a tradition of this kind of writing in England and Australia, isn't it? I mean, you you have a sort of a brief review of the literature uh, at the beginning of the book. Uh, what What is the motivation for this type of writing in those pictures? Is it just that they are trying to, uh, you know, uh, memorialize a, a great event or is there something more that they are trying to achieve?
2: Uh, first of all, I wouldn't say there is a kind of a tradition for this. Uh, there have been a few books written on partnerships, mm-hmm. and the most famous is probably Ted Aletson's innings, which was uh, very fast and very counter-attacking innings from number uh, from low in the order, and that was played in a county match. And John Arlott wrote a book on it. And uh, when Abhishek and I were discussing about some of the innings in the past and this innings, uh, this partnership came about, we thought that if that particular innings deserved a book, that particular phase of play uh, after lunch, that deserved a book, this innings, if played by a couple of Englishmen, this partnership, that would definitely have been made into a book. And uh, yes, uh, in England, we have certain books like this on a match, maybe on uh, a partnership only the Ted Alston's uh, innings comes to mind. Uh, there have been uh, books on matches, 1926, Oval Test, uh, 1963, uh, the Lord's Test, uh, Alan Ross wrote a classic on it. But uh, when you come to Australia, there was, uh, again, a first, first class uh, innings, for, you know, first class uh, last wicket partnership. That was, uh, again, written, with a very prosaic title, and I'm not uh, saying that because uh, it's all in the book, but um, partnerships are generally, I mean, not uh, that much written about. So this uh, tradition is not there, but this definitely deserved a book. We have seen books like um, uh, Ponsford and Udfull and uh, Hutton and Washbrook, or say uh, Hurst and Rhodes, but these were about uh, people who forged a partnership through their careers. But in one particular match, it is uh, very rare to find a book like this. But this definitely needed to be written about, as Abhishek said that uh, it was a phase of play in which there was counterattack from both ends, from an impossible, near impossible position, and uh, against one of the greatest bowling attacks uh, assembled. And secondly, the setting with uh, Nelson Mandela in the stands, and uh, this was about a friendship tour with back-to-back series played between India and South Africa, two sides who had never played before the isolation uh, years, and um, it was, and these countries are linked in so many different ways, so all that has been talked about in this book.
0: You know, I, I know of books about you know uh, Sobers hitting six-sixes. I think there are multiple books about that episode.
2: Sobers, uh, six-sixes of Sobers, yes. Uh, that's uh, yeah one over and there were two books written about them by the same person. Yeah. And uh, the first one about the over itself and the second one uh, kind of a mystery about what happened to the ball and what happened after that. Richie Beno wrote A Tale of Two Tests, which is one was the tight Test, uh, definitely 1960-61 Brisbane, and the second one uh, at Manchester the following season against England, which was another classic test. So these two together was uh, made into one book. So Mm -hmm. there are some certain um, books uh, in this regard, but what I would say, there is plenty of scope, uh, plenty of uh, phases of play to be written about, Plenty of uh, matches to be written about because if you ask me, the unit of cricket is a match. You know, it's it's the match. It's it's the match which is the event. It is a career. Yes, if you write a biography, a career makes sense. But when you are talking about the cricketing action, it is it is the match and um, like uh, the action happening, the battle between bat and ball and a partnership like that is like a battle within the entire uh, the bigger battle uh, one book i have forgotten to mention was uh, the ashes the first test for uh, the ashes the one that gave rise to the birth of the ashes um, that particular book has been made into more or less a detailed ball-by-ball analysis and uh, also, John Arlott wrote another one about the 1877 Ashes, 1877 uh, Test match, the first ever Test match. So all these books are there, but there are plenty of other uh, dramatic moments of uh, cricket which should be made into books.
1: One book that uh, was written on partnerships, I would say it was more of a booklet by Stephen Chalk on that Sutcliffe and Holmes' uh, uh, 555 on partnership. I mean, even though it was not the largest book, it was still a Stephen Chalk masterpiece, you can call it.
2: Yes, uh, it was by Stephen Chalk. So um, even though it was a leaflet compared to his other books that he has written, Ooh. even then he can, he has more substance and more style in it than yes. maybe uh, the, the life's work of most of the authors put together. You know,
0: I could think of like two adjacent genres of uh, cricket books. What you've done is different in specific ways and interesting ways from those. But the first is the tour diary. Which uh, both uh, players and journalists who cover to us, right? You know, Rahul Batacharya's uh, tour diary of of the of India tour of Pakistan in two thousand three four that season, I think, is is an is an example. And you know, David Fritz's review of uh, the nineteen eighty one Ashes, I think it was titled "What Botham Rekindles the Ashes." that that, that that's a, that's a much more common genre. And the other. Is a you know a book like uh, you know the one Sunil Gavaskar would produce, like One Day Wonders or something like that, which was not really a memoir of his career, but a memoir of you know a tournament or you know a, a period of his 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 career. You know, but what you're doing is is something different, where you're you're using you're using this one specific event to tell a story of a period of a historical period the most interesting figure in this book i think abhishek is paul adams and, uh, I, I i found his thoughts in this book to be particularly interesting how how willing were these players to actually discuss this with you you know how did they re- how did they receive it when you put this idea to them abhishek lance crozer and paul adams
1: they were happy to answer some questions the questions we asked and then uh... Ganesh was another very helpful person. We reached out to uh, G. Vishwanath who covered that series, a very senior journalist, and he gave us, he told us things uh, we never knew, especially regarding the Durban uh, the Durban cloud level, how uh, the feedback he got from local, how the the altitude of the cloud affected the swing and uh, things like that. I mean, we got really sick, and they were actually, all of them were very helpful. Uh, some of them were not, I mean, obviously we couldn't use their quotes, but uh, yeah. And Arunava, I think, had already talked to Clive Rice a
0: few years ago and
1: delivered things
0: after. So your story begins essentially at the start of the second test, but you sort of situated in... Let's call it what it is—the disaster of the first test. Like, they were bowled out for 166, and South Africa were bowled out twice for, I think, if I'm not wrong, below 250 or some 250 or thereabouts. It it was almost entirely seen in terms of the limits of India's batting. That that was all. Like there was no the the Indian team was basically the Indian batting. There was no other part to the Indian team which played any any role in the evaluation or, or in the in the in the story of the contest. Right? But you know, with today's eyes, like between the three of us, we know that you know it, it, it's basically the 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 lack of bowling depth which basically you know cripples a, a batting lineup. You know, so, it is, do you think that India's batsmen in that era got a raw deal and, you know, were sort of harshly judged because of this, you know, obsession with batting? Abhishek. First of all, 1996
1: India was not a strong batting side. There were only two senior batsmen. The others, Dravid, Lakshman, and uh, Dravid, Laksh. And Ganguly uh, had just come into the side. Raman uh, had been there, but he was never a regular. And, and India had been promoting using Mungia as opener. They had been trying with various options. So the batting was not settled at all at, at that point. In fact, throughout the first half of the first half of the 90s, other than Sidhu and to some extent Manjrekar, India never had a strong. Had, a, had never had a consistent top order going. So what? When we think of uh, a strong batting line, it was not actually there. Uh, now about bowling, uh, uh, as we have shown, Srinath and Prasad were about as far. Any two of the maybe not as they took uh, more wickets than Donald and Pollock, I think, in the series. But uh, while they were not as good, it was the support cast that made the difference. So, I, what happened was, even in this test, I think in the first innings things, uh, South Africa lost seven wickets. One of them was probably a run-out, I'm talking from memory. And Srinath took three, Prasad took three, and there was nothing. So, this was the story, even in the first test. The two of them got the wickets, and the lack of depth in the pace bowling attack was what, what hurts. Now, South Africa, the two new world bowlers were Donald and Pollock. Once they were through, there was no respite for the Indians. So, the McMillan and Clusen were there. They were fantastic bowlers. And the worst bit is, McMillan, Clusen, and Bollock could also bat, and they didn't have a long tail like India. So, yeah, it was numbers 8 to 11 of the two sides that made the difference. The top order, I mean, South Africa did not do well either in either innings of that derby. So, had there been a potent third seamer, a a world-class third seamer, the way South Africa had, I don't know, maybe India would not have won at Durban, but at least it would not have been a 3.29 run margin. Maybe it would have been much less.
0: You know, um, Arunab, uh, when I think back to that 1996-97 Durban test, I always then think back to that same test 10 years later in 2006-7. Uh, when uh, India batted first made 249 and South Africa were batting on I think it was on the second day and uh, I still remember I don't remember a lot of commentary but I still remember this one comment from Pat Simcox he looked at the ground he looked at the it looked at the conditions and he looked at Sri shanth bowl like three balls and he said anything could happen here and South Africa were bowled out for 84, you know. So you know, perhaps that 166 was not, you know, it was not quite the, you know, the the the, the sort of the cultural currency given to that, and then the reputations which were constructed out of that were perhaps not did not have cricketing merit to the extent that we seem to think that they do.
2: I mean. Uh... No matter what the condition, uh, unless it is totally, totally unplayable, 166, I mean, uh, there is hardly any scope to justify that. I mean, they were, uh, like, bowled out for really ridiculously low scores. But at the same time, as Abhishek pointed out, that India had Srinath and Prasad, and two excellent bowlers in those conditions. And you must remember that they, uh, like South African bowlers, had been born and brought up in those conditions. And uh, even if they are of equal quality, we, they, like Srinath showed in India, that he could be actually a more potent threat in India because he was more used to these conditions. Like he did win the series out there, and even in uh, uh, the first test in Ahmedabad, he just ran through the South African side in '96. Now, but the problem was after these two. I mean, Dota Ganesh eh, has been an excellent help to us. I mean, uh, but at the same time, he was not in that category um, when it comes to bowling. And uh, if you look at the previous series that India played in England, Srinath and Prasad, that was Prasad's debut series, and Srinath had just uh, taken over as a spearhead. And the first change was Pahas Mambre, And uh, Azhar did not have enough confidence to give him the ball even on a really seeming wicket at uh, this Edge baston where every batsman was struggling against the seam- seamers except for Nasser Hussein and Tendulkar. Now, uh, with that uh, particular... And I think in the first test, uh, David Johnson also played, right? Uh, Jake? In the first test, uh, it was David are... Johnson. Uh, um, here at Durban. Yes, the Durban or was yes, it? Yes,
1: Dur- I think.
2: I think so. because yeah. this was Ganesh's debut. Yeah, so I mean, uh, yeah, so the support bowling. If you compare uh, Klusner and Macmillan, no, Donald and Pollock taking a breather and Klusner and Macmillan coming, uh, coming in. That means that no batsman had any respite. Uh, one of the reasons that Sachin and Azar did well in counter-attacking is that I don't think there was any other option. Like, uh, playing a waiting game is not possible in South African conditions against such a lineup. But if you take the Indian bowlers, uh, it was not that. I mean, uh you play off the first two, and then you have quite a like uh, smooth run after that. And that was... Uh, even more apparent in the next tour in 2002 you know 2001 2002 that tour uh, in which um, there was incredibly difficult conditions and uh, india went in with uh, two seamers and before lunch it was Kumble and harbhajan bowling in tandem that uh, so yeah when you say that uh, the th- those that generation of batsmen have been a bit Uh, judged a bit harshly yes because uh, people tend to judge how many victories they have been uh, part of but it is it is basically a team game with 22 contributions and it is a complex result of all these 22 contributions so uh, the batsmen cannot win matches abroad just through their batting if there is no uh, support uh, from their bowlers
1: Again, uh, still sticking uh, to that batting bowl, batsman and bowler's point. See, a few months after this test match, India were bowled out for 81 at Bridget. No, they were chasing 120. West Indies' bowling attack, if I remember correctly, was Ambrose, uh, Bishop, Rose, probably Dillon. I think Dillon was the fourth. India had three seamers, Prasad, Kuruvilla and Ganesh. They didn't have Srinath. Now, if Srinath had played, India would have been chasing much less than 120. I'm sure of yeah. this, much less than 81 as well. The test could have been won if India had a proper out-and-out fast bowler. The mismatch was in bowling, not batting.
2: Yes, and that was apparent when uh, Franklin Rose and Mervyn Tilland, they added a whole lot of runs. That was basically the difference, you know, in the third innings. Mm-hmm. And that was because uh, there was no out-and-out fast bowler to really like uh, get through the tail.
0: You know, uh, Abhishek, in, in the book, uh, you you guys draw a very nice contrast in the styles of Azaruddin and Tenrukar. And when I was reading the book, I, it sort of occurred to me that, you know, Azaruddin was probably the last of a style of batsman who no longer exists in the 21st century. You know, this was a player who would use a light bat and would have to really hit the ball to hit it to the boundary. You know, and, and that that kind of player has been completely supplanted by modern players who use heavy bats and, you know, yes. who, who play a lot of check drives, you know, who play a lot of punches, uh, you know, who play a lot of... You uh, rely a lot on timing and on meeting the ball in the right time rather than, you know, really, really hitting the ball hard. You know, and Azurdin was sort of unique in that, in that he... He he would really really hit the ball hard, uh, and and that that sort of your in your description every time you you describe a, a an over or a or a or a or a spell or something like that 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 contrast comes through very very strongly. I think it's worth reflecting on Azharuddin a little bit right now.
1: I think there were two modes of Azhar. One yeah. that we usually I mean. Today's fans, mostly 80s fans, 90s fans, today's fans, remember his vibe was his wisty elegance. That is there. I mean, Lakshman, I don't know who, which one of the two was better. That's purely subjective. But the other aspect was outrageously angry kind of azar. That came out when he hit through the off. There was nothing, uh, there was rarely anything soft about his offside shots. And then there were there were moments when he stepped out and hit over the top. Now these, would, I mean, even these could be classified into two parts. One that he hit during the test matches. So that was usual, he stepped out against the spinners, he lofted them. But in one case, if you remember, after sometime after the 40, 40 over mark, around 42, 43, he would signal for uh, probably some sort of slog special bat. That happened in every ODI. So once that came out, he would hit anyone. And uh, when he stayed, he hit them. They stayed hit. I mean, um, you've seen cr- cricketers in recent part, past play with heavy bats, but this was there. But this was totally completely brute power and timing. And that those leg side flicks didn't happen in the slog overs. I mean, they were it's very difficult to describe the full swing it was not never uh, what do you say grammatically correct it came from second slip, third slip it still landed on his uh, landed on his left shoulder but the shot went in went straight
2: it's very difficult to describe unless you see it on video or see it live people often uh, connect other with Lakshman and that is very natural because they were both very very graceful on-site players and very risky and both came from Hyderabad so uh, they often make this comparison but uh, if you just take off that uh, on-site play I don't think there was much uh, in common between the two like uh, even on the offside Lakshman developed into that caressing player his uh, drives or his tears all would be caressed through the offside, excellently placed, and uh, played with grace. Other on the leg side, he was an artist. On the offside, his bat speed was phenomenal. And there was always that kind of hint of a kind of a grammatical mistake, which always put his fans at the edge of their seats, like uh, he could get out, but most often he didn't. Like he managed to bring them off. And when he actually aimed for the stands, he fully he just threw everything into it. His, uh, there was this backlift, his bat speed, and the follow-through. So, yeah, it was the kind of batting that we don't see too much nowadays. But you Abhishek,
0: I don't know, if you point to an inflection point in Azuruddin's career, or at least what you notice as an inflection point in azuruddin's career, which is in the series before this one when uh, Azuruddin got hit, uh, I think, on the forearm. And there was was all this talk beginning at that time where his position was under pressure. And there was sort of an element of him lashing out in a few of his innings after that, where he would just, you know, go after the bowling. I mean, he was no longer really constructing an innings or trying to, you know, uh, play himself in and get, you know, play the conventional, you know, Uh, how should I put it, play the conventional middle-order Batman's innings. He was out there to murder the bowling. And you point out the period, that 100, he made at Eden Gardens as a point where you noticed a change in him, which was sort of not, which was a shift from sort of the mild-mannered artist of the early 90s and the 80s. Uh, Yes.
2: Yes. It's not that he hadn't gone for runs immediately even uh, before that. For example, uh, the first shift came towards the early 90s when he went to New Zealand and uh, then England as the captain. And he played some fabulous innings there. And even uh, Bishan Singh Pedi, who was infamously the coach at the time, uh, he also said that I have seen other play uh, equally good innings, but they were a lot slower, a lot, lot more test match type. And here he is going really, really fast. He is scoring really fast. Uh, even the Adelaide Ad- 100 that uh, he scored in 91-92 series, the only time he actually clicked in that series, that was also a very f- very quick scoring innings. But uh, what happened in that uh, Eden Test? In um, just before that, uh, India had played South Af- India had played the semi-final in the, at the Eden at the, during the World Cup, and um, Azhar had been roundly booed because most of the people had come to the conclusion, post facto, that uh, he had taken a wrong decision and India had batted. Uh, India had bowled uh, fielded first, and. Um, and that's why they had lost. And uh, that was a chaotic match with b- Bottles thrown in and all that. And Azar had been roundly booed. And I don't think he forgot that. And it was quite evident that he didn't forget that because uh, Azar had a very uh, honeymoon type of relationship with Eden. He always enjoyed batting there. Even against England in 93, he had scored a century and a huge century at that. He had been totally, uh, there were a lot of applause for that. But uh, when he... Walked back that day with uh, his forearm injury. One thing happened that uh, in the dressing room We hear that uh, in the Lakshman's Autobiography it is written that I think the coach Lal he Questioned that why he had actually come in Why didn't he continue and other uh, didn't take very kindly to that and so when he returned He was he just went for it. He just went for the bowling. He kept playing strokes and um It was also kind of uh, the immaturity of Lance Klusner in that particular innings. It was his first test and he kept pitching short and Azar kept playing those strokes and he kept hooking. And uh, they came off and when he reached his hundred, he just didn't raise his bat. He just didn't acknowledge the crowd. He just, uh, the bat remained hanging from his bat, uh, from, from his hand. And he just the people were applauding like mad, like they had never seen batting like that. And very rarely they'd seen batting like that, uh, hundred in uh, those many balls and uh, I think 74 balls. And Azar just stood there, didn't even acknowledge a single uh, cheer. So that showed me that, that that told me that uh, Azar had really changed at that particular moment. There was some uh, transformation. He, kept playing his shots after that and uh, in the second innings you remember india was at a desperate situation and uh, the innings he played he scored a 50 and he top scored in that innings but some would say that it was an irresponsible innings uh, especially because he got out uh, uh clashing through the slips and um but again the very next test match if you see the 160 odd that he made that was a gem that was uh, on a difficult wicket and he played a real gem. So it was a very productive period for him, but what I thought was if he was batting in helpful conditions uh, or helpful in the sense that uh, in conditions he was used to, he would play his normal game. But if it was slightly difficult for him, he would go after the bowling, try to make a while the sun shines sort of thing. And that was the way he batted most and, of the late nineties.
1: And but that uh, that uh the sunshines was really how I mean that was that sums up Azhar's career because if you notice Azhar's career, uh, he started with three hundreds on debut. The then he lost. Then he didn't get hundreds anymore. There was almost no hundred between that and nineteen ninety. I think he got one or maybe two in the in all those in that five year period. Then suddenly in New Zealand he got that one ninety or so. Uh, in England he at Lords he probably got the best hundred of them all. And uh, after that he uh, got uh, and after that he struggled in Australia, South Africa. Back home he again got runs. Here he scored three hundreds in four tests, and so on. You'll find
0: others scoring hundreds in clusters. One of the wonderful things about the book is that it brings back all these memories. And and the I'll tell you the one shot of Azuruddin which has always stuck in my mind, and it's a shot from a one-day match, and it's a shot from again Murli and uh, Murli Dharan in that period used to was really a master of you know giving Sri Lanka control in the middle overs. He used to bowl on a middle stump line to a three-six field, uh, you know he used to have a ring of three on the leg side and then three on the boundary behind them. And on the offside, he would either have a ring of three or he would put the cover point back uh, for the for someone who wants to hit a cover drive against him, against his break. And uh, you know Azurdin used to always try to play back to Murvidaran. And I still remember he used to he used to play back and then he used to play this inside out push into the covers for one to rotate the strike. And basically when there's a picture, I, I don't have the picture now, but I've seen this picture. And there's a picture of him playing that shot. And basically all three stumps are exposed. He's playing back. Uh, his back foot is outside leg stump. His front foot is even further outside leg stump. And he's basically playing it like with a table tennis bat almost. Uh, and it's just a shot for one. But that is, the, that is the memory I have of Azurthin. That he basically, when he batted, he batted according to his own rules. And, and there was an internal logic to his game, which worked for him. Which, you know, which got him to play from outside stump to mid-wicket. And you know, which got him to play against the field, almost. Uh, as much as play against the bowling, you know, but uh, and, and there's also sort of a, you know, this, what you're saying about make hay while the sun shines, there's also, it's not just uh, it's not just him being cavalier, right, it's also him being fearless, you know, he's not really scared of being out.
1: When Azhar used to be in form, the number of times he exposed all three stumps, I mean, I, I, I if someone had kept track of that, it would have been. I mean, it would have been really, really high. You would be scared. A fast bowler bowling, let alone spinner. Fast bowler is bowling, Azza would expose the stumps to hit the ball to cover point or something, and he would do it consistently. He could uh, on on TV, you could see all three stumps, and then the bat came out of nowhere. For that yeah. split second, you would have your heart heart in your mouth. I don't know how he did that but he
0: were, he never he never hesitated doing that um aruna uh, i want to move to uh, another part of the book the b- book provides a very nice sort of statistical uh, i shouldn't say statistical actually it provides a very nice uh, landscape of the cricketing record you know in terms of you know india's history south africa's history uh, the history of cricket in South Africa, the history of cricket against South Africa, the history of cricket against India. Uh, and one of the one of the things you bring out is South Africa's propensity to produce all-rounders, which in that particular side, obviously there was Pollock, Klusner, and Macmillan. But those were only three of you know a long line of all-rounders. And did you ever get like a good answer as to why that was the case?
2: Yeah, if you look at the history of South African cricket, this all-rounder, this uh, right from Jimmy Sinclair, the very first uh, century hitter for South Africa. He hit the first three centuries of South Africa, in fact. And then we have the great, like really, really great, Aubrey Faulkner, whom no one talks about nowadays. He was he averaged 40 with the bat and 26 with the ball. He was leg-spinning all-rounder, one of the great googly bowlers. And uh, then down the years, uh, Plenty of them, even uh, Buck Lewin and uh, there were others like uh, Snook, uh, quite a lot of the googly bowlers, could bat, Gordon White and, uh, and then uh, down the years, there were plenty of them uh, and uh, the lost all-rounders like uh, Mike Proctor, uh, Clive Rice. And I had the opportunity of uh, talking to Clive Rice and uh, quite a long interview and I posed him this question about uh, why uh, do you think that South Africa has so many all-rounders? And his answer was like quite prosaic. I don't think he himself had an answer, ready answer to that, but he th- thought about it on the spot at the moment. He said that uh, yeah, when you are batting, you are in the game. And then if you want to be in the game, you have to bowl. Like if you are batting and then standing in third man, you are not really contributing that much. So I think most of the people in South Africa want to contribute uh, as long as they are on the field. And therefore, we have all these all-rounders, which which makes sense from, a, um, like from the personal point of view of Clive Rice or from the personal point of view of different cricketers. But uh, why this should be a national feature, I don't know about it. Um, It's just that they have a lot of all-rounders and they have always had. It's interesting.
0: Now, Abhishek, I'm I'm putting this to both of you um, and maybe Abhishek can go first, but it's interesting that the most recent, you know, great South African side, which was like the best in the world, uh, which is, you know, the late Smith years, and maybe the, uh, the 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 couple of years in the early to 2010s after that uh, that was a side made up of specialists largely you know you, it had jack callis who by then was basically a batsman uh, who bowled only occasionally uh, it had three bowlers uh, you know markle stain and you know if they played harris then harris uh, who were not really expected to bat and it had Vernon Philander, who was, you know, capable with the bat, but not in the not as good with the bat as, say, Pollock, you know. Uh, so is, 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 do you think that's a shift in, in the way South African cricketers are developing, or are we just noticing that because a lot of the South African call pack players are actually all-rounders?
1: yeah i suppose that may be the case you know i just i'm trying to think even in recent past there's no really all time great all-rounder in the south african squad as well um, i wonder what happened i i have come across an answer of, of sorts that that was something i think Siddharth monga wrote in cricket info but that was to explain why india does not produce Batsmen who can bowl. Uh, I mean, he was referring to the fact that net practices. I mean, batsmen bowling in the nets has now been replaced by throwdowns. But uh, I don't think that is applicable to the South African scenario. I mean, I don't know how much that is applicable. But yeah, you're right. Uh, the concept of batsmen who can bowl or bowlers who can bat has definitely, definitely not. is definitely not there as much as it used to be, say, 15 years ago in South African cricket. Interestingly, in some other countries, it has gone up. It's another thing that a lot of South Africans play for England these days. That may be one of the uh. reasons, but...
2: Yeah, it's an interesting observation. I, I don't think that there is any uh, possible answer to this, other than the fact that uh, they had to run out of them, like they like pro- kept producing them like an assembly line. So sometimes, uh, some point of time, they had to run out of the quality all-rounders. But that's just uh, aside. I yeah, If you look at uh, England, they do have a l- lot of them. But uh, South Africa, yeah, Keshav Maharaj can bat. Vernon Flander was good with the bat, uh, decent with the bat. But uh, after Sean Pollock, uh, I don't think uh, we have that sort of a uh, all-rounder anymore uh, and callis as you said he had almost become a batsman by the end of his career uh, like a specialist he was always a uh, specialist batsman but uh, his, he used to bowl less and less so yes uh, that's a very interesting point the game has
0: changed in in in, in towards you know wicketkeepers becoming all-rounders right i mean mm. you compare uh, Richardson. With Quinton de Kock, or you compare, you know, More or Mongia with, you know, Dhoni or Pant, and you know the the batting ability of today's keepers is uh, compared to what it was in the 80s and 90s is quite extraordinary, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. Even if uh, if somebody like uh, Sayed Kirmani. Uh, we thought he was a very combative batsman. Like, even if you uh, ask people now, they would say that he was uh, always contributing. But if you take somebody like uh, Dhoni, as you said, and Punt, I
0: okay. mean, that's
2: a completely different uh, ball game altogether. Tim yeah. Payne is an anachronism almost. Yes, even if you take Mark, Mike uh, Mark Boucher, you know? Yeah. So he was not to that uh, Quentin Decock level. I mean, he was very good with the bat, but he was still, you, you could say that he was somewhat old-fashioned uh, wicketkeeper in that respect. That he was not a genuine, genuine batsman. If you look at his record properly, but uh, yeah, peacock yeah, he is often the premier batsman of South Africa. It's the same with yeah. uh, Rishabh Pant and uh, Abhishek, and I have both said that he he should be like touring as a batsman. I mean, if uh, his keeping is not up to the level, I mean, he has proved himself as a batsman. And yeah. uh, every country, like uh, if you take England, they have several of them who can uh, uh, play as batsmen or play as both wicketkeeper and batsman.
0: Yeah, wh- why is that? Why, why is is that just a, a quirk, or is there something in the something in the way these teams are being organized, or something in the way the wicketkeeping spot? is being viewed nowadays that uh, that is causing that. Because part of it has to do with you know a shift in selection, right? No team can afford, after Gilchrist, basically no team is able to afford uh, a pure keeper without any consideration for how many runs the keeper will contribute. And I think that has shifted the way in which uh, keepers uh, who want to be considered for the job think about are batting as well, isn't it? Uh, Abhishek, you want to take this?
1: Yeah, I mean, see, Gilchrist, I would also bring Andy Flower into this. Flower uh, wouldn't, uh, Flower was actually not the trendsetter, but if you ask me, he was at least as good a batsman as Gilchrist, given his record, given his record as a specialist cricket keeper. And uh, I mean, the amount of pressure and responsibility had to handle. But yes, since then, since Gilchrist came along, wicket keepers around the world, teams around the world sort of ex- started expecting more of their wicket keepers. Now, that did not happen in one generation, but this is basically about a, a well over a decade after Gilchrist's retirement and about two decades after Gilchrist's test debut. So, by now, a new generation. Has emerged. Uh, I mean, with the uh, with the notion, with the idea that the expectations on them are what are uh, similar to what used to be from Gilchrist. They know that even if they cannot keep better than someone else, they can at le- they at least can bat better than their rival. And we have seen that happen. I mean, in that generation, in before Gilchrist, we have seen that Stuart versus Russell confusion. Uh, we saw Chris Reed having to battle with Matt Pryor. Before that, Jaren Jones, and we have seen that happen. I mean, the better wicket keeper having to fight with the better batsman. Now, uh, the better keepers know that even they had, they even have to compete with bats. So naturally, both ways, the, bet, the better batsman and the better keeper both are raising the bar of their weaker suit. So right. Now we, what do you call a better all-rounder? I think all-rounder can be used to describe wicketkeeper batsmen. So now we, you'll find all-rounders in almost every team. I mean, even uh, say the new teams, Afghanistan and Ireland, they have excellent wicketkeeper batsmen.
2: Yeah, and this is not really a modern phenomenon of uh, like wicketkeepers losing their place to a n- not so good keeper but a better batsman, more, a lot better batsmen like George Ruckworth and Leslie Ames. Uh, that was their story. Ames played a lot more because uh, he was averaging 40 with the bat in test cricket and uh, scoring 100 first class centuries. Um, I think it boils down to a problem of optimization. And how do you optimize your side? Uh, you have a set of skill sets and you have this uh, skill of wicket keeping and batting. And uh, if you take a phenomenal wicket keeper who is not so good batsman, and if you take a good wicket keeper who is a genuinely good batsman, so which is a better combination? I think most teams have settled uh, for the latter combination, you know, which gives you more options and which is probably numerically superior. So, how many? Uh, how much do you suffer when it is a difference between a not so good keeper and a genuinely very good keeper and how much do difference is there when it is a genuine batsman and not so good batsman and then I think the difference between the genuine batsman and not so good batsman is greater than the difference between a genuine keeper and not that good a keeper
0: you know, I, I think, you know, my, my theory about uh, this, uh, the decline of you know, all-rounders, you know, I mean, Ben Stokes is the obvious exception. And, you know, I they say that Chris Vokes is an exception, but I think Chris Vokes is very much a, a home specialist. And he's mm-hmm. very good in England. Mm-hmm. But uh, my, my, my view of this has come down to this, that in an era when where so many teams have more a lot of bowling depth you know every team now can play three genuine wicket-taking bowlers you know and the fourth bowler is really really good you know in in such an era there is a tendency towards specialists both with batting and bowling you know if we ever get back to an era where you know apart from one or two teams all other teams have you know at most one or two genuine wicket-taking bowlers you will see a return of the you know bowling all rounder uh, or the batting all rounder. You'll see like you know players like Andrew Hall or uh, players of that type making a comeback, and you know Pop, or Jacob Oram, so that type of player coming back and into the Test teams. Uh, but I, I want to conclude uh, by taking you back, both of you back to this observation which Harsha Bogle made in the in his forward, um, and he says, if anything, the game there in South Africa, he's talking about, has hollowed out since, since the 19, late 1990s, but only the future will tell us if this was the necessary weeding out of one culture and the planting of another. Um, so, uh, I, Abhishek, do you want to elaborate on that, and then we'll give uh, Arunab the last word. I mean, the measures may seem
1: harsh. Uh, it seems uh, it may seem overcompensation, but then again, uh,
0: in some cases, it may also seem soft because you're, you're talking about. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, you're, talk, you're talking about affirmative action, right? Yes,
1: some cases the measures may seem harsh, but when put into perspective about uh, against what happened in South Africa for say for decades or maybe over a century. Centuries before, uh, I mean, until 1990 happened. 1992 happened. Um, I think what happened since 1992 fails into comparison. They, whatever you do, you cannot overcompensate for that. There's too much. Too much had happened till that point, or I mean, for a for a quota to overcompensate that, or anything to overcompensate that, it's unlikely. So we have discussed that in the book at length about what South Africa used to be like uh, till that point. Yes, corrective measures have been taken. Some would say they are too harsh. Some would even say they are too soft because uh, Mandela never Mandela while Mandela wanted the change to happen, he didn't want. To, uh, I mean, he didn't want things to rush at a drastic pace. There are some South Africans who think. Contemporary South Africans would think Mandela might have been, might could have been harsher. But yeah, I mean, I think whatever
0: is happening right now is probably not overcompensating. That's my personal opinion. So, Ar- Arunab, uh, you know, one thing I always think about when, uh, when, when thinking about inequality, you know, is that we, we, we sort of think of inequality in terms of snapshots in time. Whereas inequality actually operates over time and, and it operates over time in the way compound interest operates, mm-hmm. you know, and essentially it seems to me that uh, the, the, the black community and the, you know, the broader colored community in South Africa is uh, trying to make up in 25, 30 years uh, an inequality, which has, you know, been built up over nearly a century uh, now, actually more than a century now. Uh, And so it seems to me at least that uh, the affirmative action is uh, is necessary, even if it at times may appear um, unfair in the short term
2: yeah um south africa is very very complex it's not only the blacks and whites but there are multiple shades of color so if i want to put things in perspective what was the major major injustice done to them just one example way before apartheid came into the picture in 1913 the entire country was segregated 92.7 percent of the land in the country was reserved for the whites who made up 20 percent of the population. 7.3 percent of the land was for the rest of them who made up 80 percent of the population. So and that was mainly because uh, there were the two white factions, the Afrikaners and the English, who were competing and uh, they had a huge power struggle and the Uh, Blacks were basically used as bargaining chips. Now, with a history like that, when uh, forget being exposed as cricketers, they were dehumanized. Like it was a miracle that they could even aspire to play cricket. And some of them did play cricket to a great level and became great cricketers, uh, though not in the international scene, except for Basil de Oliveira. Uh, It was a miracle because the basic uh, way of life, the the amount of dehumanization of the community, that was like uh, incredible. And that continued till the 1980s, early 90s, even. Uh, Apart from that, there was the Indian community who were considered to be the Asiatic curse, who didn't have their um, citizenship before 1960s uh, and 1961. they were not even allowed to go into the Orange Free State, like cross from Natal into Orange Free State uh, for more than 24 hours. If they had to do it, they had to get a a particular permit. Uh, They were the colored community and things are still quite, like colored is a mixed race and things are still pretty confusing for them because, at that time they were too black to be considered as whites and now they say they are too white to be considered as blacks so it is really really confusing there and all this imbalance that has taken place there is no easy solution so they are still looking for solutions and uh, the quota system is one of the measures they have taken and uh, this uh, which has raised which has resulted in a lot of heartburn like Kevin Peterson's case, if you see, or uh, the coal pack uh, people opting for that. And, uh, yeah, if you see Temba Bavuma, he has played, uh, say, 40 test matches, 67 innings, and he has just 100, and he averages 30, you know. So uh, you'd say that uh, it is not fair for a lot of better cricketers But there is no easy solution to all the imbalance that has taken place. And uh, whether this will work or not, things will balance out in the end, but it is still in the early phases. So uh, considering what has gone on in the past, tremendous cricketers, no one knew about them, you know, and then they have... There has been this change of uh, scenario, change of power, and um, there is a lot going on in the country which is totally not desirable, like um, the farm murders and everything. In this context, yes, uh, we should take the entire big picture into the consideration and whatever steps have been taken, they have been taken with some amount of thought behind it. And those were necessary to undo certain of the damages, certain uh, imbalance that has been uh, like inflicted in the past. So as you said, it's not just a snapshot. We have to consider the entire time period to see what has gone on and what is the situation currently. And uh, whether there will ever be a like balanced society, a peaceful society and with equal opportunity for all. It remains to be seen, but it will take time. It will take time. It's not so easy. And uh, just saying that it is not the proper way, I don't think anyone has the answer. So um, no one is in a position to take a proper call whether this is the correct way or not.
0: Thank you. I'd just like to conclude by saying that uh, you know Abhishek and Arunab have written a book about uh, a partnership between two great players, which took place 23 years ago. Uh, it might as well be a partnership from a different India because we cannot imagine with today's eyes what watching the Indian team play abroad in the late 90s was like. Today we live in an India where you know the B- BCCI is the richest board in the world. India have beaten Australia in Australia, they won a World Cup, they're the best, one of the best teams in the world, best resource team in the world, and all of these things make India, today's Indian team, a team from a different planet. It is, it is to paraphrase uh, Harsha Bogle, a, a, a completely different culture today in Indian cricket compared to what it was in the late 90s. Yeah, the pace
2: um, attack, the pace attack. Yeah today's pace attack is extraordinary attack is, Yeah, extraordinary and uh, there is no comparison what we had we had some decent bowlers but the amount of uh, reserve that we have uh, bench strength it's extraordinary right now
0: and uh, it it doesn't look like that bench strength is going to fade anytime soon compared to that, compared to where south africa is in the the south africa of the late 90s and south africa of today uh, they have faced even more overwhelming Changes and they are they have faced, of course, the call pack drain. They're they are now a whole new generation of South Africans. If you think about it, uh, South Africans who were two years old when Tenrukha and Azharuddin were playing that stand, uh, and Adam Baker took that brilliant catch uh, to end Tenrukha's innings and, and India's innings, they are now 25 years old. The fact that they are Abhishek and Arunov have written this book about. One stand is itself interesting and it itself makes this book worth worth your attention. But I think the distance from which they are writing, a whole generation, a whole cricketing generation, actually multiple cricketing generations, adds to its value. And I think uh, I'll conclude by thanking Abhishek and Arunabh. So uh, thank you, both of you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it was thank a pleasure. You.
1: Yeah. Thank you.